0: Did you know that your faith is considered a stand, that you are supposed to stand in your faith, the Bible tells you? Did you know that faith is not an ethereal word, like you can't you can't just say, I have faith in God? Did you know that faith is a perfected word, which in the Bible means it, it, it's not just an idea, but it's an action, it's both. That makes it dynamic. Any of you ever taken speech class? The, the, the teacher my, may or may not have taught you something that I thought was very fundamental. Uh, my speech teacher taught me when the, the things that you say match the things that you do, that is the definition in speech of dynamism. It's dynamic. Because you're not just throwing out there an idea to try to hype people up. They see you living that idea. And you're not just living an idea without any instruction about how to do it. You're also talking about how you're doing it and you're instructing. So when those two things come together, it's dynamic. That's why the Bible says we need faith and works, not because you can purchase your salvation. You cannot work hard enough to go to heaven, but your faith isn't perfected without the works. It's an idea and it's an action. He says, you show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. Putting feet to your faith. The Bible commands us in three or four different scriptures that we'll talk about today and more scriptures that we won't talk about today, that our commission concerning our faith is not uh, to run and fight and and be in, in constant motion, but our commission is to stand. Stand in faith. Stand at attention. Stand and be recognized. Take a stand. Make a stand. It's a lot different than sitting. Standing makes you taller. Standing means you're being, again, recognized. Or you're making a statement. You're taking a stand. In the church, it's good to stand. It's not good to stand alone. Romans chapter 5, verse 22 Says, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. First Corinthians sixteen thirteen says, Watch, stand fast in the faith. I don't know if I have this written down right. Oh, it's not behind me. Be strong. Second Corinthians one twenty four says. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. Philippians 1.27, only let your conversation be as it becomes the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Father, we pray this morning over your holy word. We pray for an anointing. We pray that you would open our minds And open our ears and our hearts to be able to hear and receive what you have for us this morning. In Jesus mighty name, everyone said, amen. You may be seated this morning. We're going to come back to those scriptures, but I got to tell you a story. First, we're going to start in the book of Exodus, the 28th chapter and the 15th verse. So back in the Old Testament days, church was done a little differently. First of all, you were never allowed to sit down, so thank God for the New Testament, right? So you come to the temple service, and you would stand, ironically, uh, for the entire service, and there would be a Levitical choir. Um, there would be sacrifices going on a lot of times, uh, not, not every synagogue meeting, but at the temple there would be, and um, there, were, uh, there were different types of priests that had different orders and things to do. And the most significant service of the year and the most significant position of the service was called the high priest. There were a lot of rules and regulations as to uh, what you could and couldn't do as the high priest, especially the one service he was really up front and in charge, which was uh, what we call the day of atonement or Yom Kippur. Lots of things that he would have to do, certain way that he would have to dress. And in Exodus chapter 28 verse 15, we are going to study here for a second a little bit about the priestly garb and uh, maybe you've heard of it maybe you haven't. Um, I don't usually say this out loud but I forgot to talk to Ted about it. I send you a slide I'm going to need it in a little while. I emailed it hope you got it. <laughs> Exodus 28:15 says and you shall make the breastplate of judgment with cunning work. This breastplate is what we're going to concentrate on in this uh, in this passage. After the work of the ephod, shalt thou make it of gold, of blue, of purple, of scarlet, of fine twined linen, shall you make it? Four squares shall it be, being doubled, a span shall be the length thereof, and a span shall be the breadth thereof. You see how specific God is? I mean, real specific, right? He could have just said, hey, make a breastplate, put some stones on it. Use it for this. He could have even said, hey, make a breastplate, put this many stones on it, which we're going to see. That, that's sort of necessary. Maybe even say, I want them to be these types of stones. But to talk about the colors of the linen, the way that they come together, the doubling of the knots, the doubling of the size, the length and the breadth. God leaves nothing to chance. Nothing to chance. That that alone should give you a little confidence in who you serve. Amen? God leaves nothing to chance. That's awesome, right? So your life, in other words, Einstein said after studying the composition of the universe... That God does not play dice, right? There are specific laws that govern astrophysics. There's another set of specific laws that govern quantum mechanics and all the small things that you can't see. And nothing happens outside of those laws. This isn't a chance creation. God doesn't play dice, right? Okay. Okay. Uh, Verse 17, you shall set in the settings of stone four rows. The first shall be a sardis, a topaz, a carbuncle. Everybody say three. The second row shall be an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. Everybody say six. And the third row shall be a liger, an agate, and an amethyst. Everybody say nine. And the fourth row shall be a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. Everybody say twelve. And they shall be set in gold in their enclosing. There's 12 for a reason. Verse 21 tells us the stone shall be with the names of the children of Israel, 12 according to their names, the engravings of a signet, every one with his name, shall they be according to the 12 tribes. So this is God giving real specific direction about how to build this ephod. The ephod is like the fabric that the breastplate would hang on, how to build the ephod, how to build the breastplate and specifically why he wants it this way. What I want you to remember is the number 12. And then I want to take you to another portion of Scripture, Ezekiel 28, verse number 12. This is one of the most popular, if not the most popular, portion of Scripture to give us some insight and some detail as to the enemy that we fight. Ezekiel chapter 28 is a prophecy. Son of man is what God calls Ezekiel. Verse number 12, he says, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. Everybody say king. Before that, he talks about a prince, and now he's talking about a king. Uh, There are princes and there are kings, obviously, on the earth that he could be speaking of. But also the Bible calls uh, demonic forces princes and principalities. And there are strong man demons, the Bible talks about, that are kings over an area or kings over a specific temptation, if you will. So when speaking prophetically as he is here in Ezekiel 28, you need to be able to recognize is he speaking prophetically here because of the title given about a person in a position or is he speaking prophetically about a spirit that is in a place and the the rest of the prophecy will define it in verse number 12 saying to him, thus says the Lord God, you seal up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. It's not beyond God. Uh, to use um, certain types of of euphemisms, even if it seems uh, even if it seems a bit um, I had the word and I lost it, exaggerated wasn't the word, but that'll work. Uh, so to say, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, he could be talking about a man, even though there's no man perfect in beauty, um, maybe full of wisdom, but he only really said that about a couple of people. So we're kind of okay. Maybe it sounds a little bit much over the top, but let's see. Verse thirteen. You have been in Eden, the garden of God. Who do we know that's been in Eden? Yeah, besides Adam and Eve, there's one more. Yeah, right. That have been in the garden. So now it seems like we're maybe down to three possibilities and except that Adam and Eve are not a possibility. So maybe down to one. Every precious stone was thy covering. Let's take you to Exodus 28 so that you know what stones of covering are. The stones of covering are the breastplate of the high priest. So this king or whatnot, a regular king, would not have any stones of covering. So this, uh, this spirit that he is speaking to, at one point, had the stones of covering, which are the authoritative symbol of the high priest over a region. Okay? Now, to, to, uh, to really prove that, he names the stones. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond. It's the same exact order that we saw in Ezekiel 28 for row number one. Everybody say three. Row number two in Exodus um, is the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper. So it's going in order. Everybody say six. And then the next one here in Ezekiel is sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. But that is not the row given in Ezekiel. skips a row. You can put that uh, slide up there if you have it. The uh, uh, No, all right, I guess it didn't work. But it, it just shows um, what we just talked about. just gives you a visual. Um, it skips the third row, but it does name the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle are the fourth row. So everybody say nine. In gold, the workmanship of the tabarets and of the pipes was prepared in thee in the day that you were created. So we're seeing two things here. He has the stones of covering, so he has the authoritative uh, symbol of a high priest. He has pipes and tambarets that were in him the day that he was created. This is where we get the idea if you've ever heard that he was the worship leader in heaven. I don't know if you ever heard that about uh, Satan, but that is what uh, people refer to him as, sort of the worship leader because of the musical talent that was put in him. At the same time, he's called the high priest, uh, the former high priest of the heavenly tabernacle because of these stones of covering. So we're seeing some some characteristics here. Verse 14, you are the anointed cherub that covers. What is a cherub? An angel, right? So we're clearly not talking about a man here. Clearly, obviously, there's only one high priest. There's only one person that's been in Eden. That's not Adam and Eve. There's only one that could have that covering. And now it straight up calls him an angel. So who are we talking about? Pretty clear, right? I have set thee. So that was upon the holy mountain of God, and you have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. You were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity was found in you. Until iniquity was found in you. And then you can go to Isaiah 14. We're not going to go there today. But if you want to read more about the fall of Satan and how that came about. But that's not the purpose of today's sermon. So we're going to leave it at that. What we're going to focus on this morning is this breastplate and this ephod that was given the high priest in Exodus 28. That is a replica of the same breastplate and ephod that was given to Lucifer at some point in the Garden of Eden. And this predates Adam and Eve. We know that because when he showed up in the garden with Adam and Eve, there was no breastplate. There were no stones of covering. He was not the anointed cherub of covering any longer. He was not perfect in beauty. He was still full of wisdom, uh, so to speak, although the wisdom wasn't of godly wisdom. We saw him show up in the Garden of Eden in a fallen state. Here it describes him in a pre-fallen state, but yet he was in the Garden of Eden. That, again, is another sermon for another day, but it's something to consider and study on your own and or go back through the podcast. I think we have a couple teachings. Game of Thrones, I think we taught that uh, last Easter, ironically enough. So you can listen to that and um, kind of get an idea of what that's all about. Um, so here we are. Oh, by the way, this is uh, message three on, of Sticks and Stones, our series, and we're just calling it Stand. So we see um, we see these teachings but we're missing one thing we're missing one row right there are three stones that are present on the breastplate of the high priest on earth and that are absent from the breastplate of the high priest who was formerly in the heavens so in our series sticks and stones today we're going to concentrate on those three missing stones why are they missing what do they represent what does that mean for you and i so we're going to uncover a mystery this isn't the first time we've talked about it but we're going to pull some some different things in this morning are you ready Are you ready for the word of God? Word of God is good. Yes. Yes. Sharp as any two edged sword, able to to divide even the soul from the spirit, the bone from the marrow reveals all things. Yes. Word of God is a big deal, right? This morning in Sunday school, Jose uh, put that on display in in a really good way, just as opening prayer about why we're here. We're here to learn from the word of God. We're here. that The word of God can speak into our lives. We're not here to see me or John or anything else. We're not here even for Edgewater, although we should be committed to Edgewater if God's called us here. But we are here for the same reason that hopefully everybody else in the universe is at Lakewood right now. We're here to hear the word of God, right? Right. You just by the way, if people ever ask you, oh, yes, how many people go to your church? I like to say, well, between me and Joel, we run about thirty thousand and forty-five people. So we're doing pretty good. <laughs> so just tell them that. I can do the math later. So what's up with these three stones? Well, we, we saw in, uh, in Exodus, whenever he was giving the uh, express directions about how to build this thing, that he gave the 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes, right? So in order to do our homework, what we really need to do is figure out what three tribes are missing from that representation that are there on earth, but were not given any credence in the heavenly realm. What, who are they? What do they represent? Why are they missing? That's where we're going this morning. Are you with me? Everybody say stand. Genesis chapter 49, verse number 14. These are the three tribes that are missing. We know that because we're the, it's the third row. And these are three, six. These are number seven, eight, and nine. Now, if you go into Genesis 49 and you start reading, you're going to notice something. We're skipping a tribe. Skipping the tribe named Dan. There's a reason why we're skipping the tribe named Dan. Because Dan is in the middle of the seven, eight, or nine. Joseph is at the end of the 12. But by the time we get to Exodus chapter 24, Dan and Joseph have been removed. By the time that the breastplate takes on the fullness of what it is, they've been removed. Joseph uh, has two sons, uh, uh, and the other guy. Uh, uh, I had their. I, I know their names. Um, it starts with an E and an M. Thank you, Ephraim and Manasseh. It's just Man, my words are escaping me this morning. Ephraim and Manasseh, they get moved in and the other two get moved out. So uh, and Dan is really representative of the the tribe that represents the Antichrist. So we're not using him for good reason because we're referencing, uh, although we're in Genesis, we're we're referencing Exodus. So we use Issachar, Gad and Asher. So let's read Genesis chapter 49. This is Abraham giving uh, prophecy of what all of these different. Uh, sons are going to represent. I'm sorry, this is a Genesis giving prophecy. It doesn't mean to Abraham of all these different sons and what their calling sort of is, what they represent. Genesis 49:14. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching down between two burdens, and he saw that rest was good, and the land that it was pleasant, and he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant under tribute. So first of all, what we need to know is that every single one of these tribes that is uh, prophesied about here in Genesis, every single verse of scripture in your Bible is a reference in some way, shape or form to Jesus Christ and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Every single scripture is prophetic. We've taught Bible studies and we've had sermons on that. Again, you'd have to reference the podcast because it's a long teaching, uh, but it becomes very, very evident. So when we're looking at Issachar and we're looking at his um, prophecy, what does that say about Christ? Did Jesus ever say anything about burden? Anybody remember? Did did what he say about burden involve rest? It did. Did what he say about burden involve him uh, sort of bowing his shoulder to bear? And did he have any part of his ministry that was based in servitude? Because these are the things that we're seeing in Issachar. So you, if you key on those words, we end up at the scripture where Jesus tells us, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden, and get rest. For my burden is light, my yoke is easy. So you have the burden, you have the rest, you have him bearing it for you. An important thing when we're talking about the burden and the yoke of Jesus Christ just a few weeks ago we talked about the rabbi's yoke. If you weren't here in a nutshell, the rabbi's yoke is always considered in ancient Israel the interpretation of the law uh, in regards to a specific rabbi. So if you were going to walk into a rabbi's office, if you will, and uh, ask to be part of his discipleship, his Talmud zine, he would ask you a few questions, he would quiz you on the Old Testament, and then he would tell you whether you should go home and work with your family business or whether you were able to come be part of his crew his Talmud zine, and that would all be based on your ability to receive his yoke, which was him interpreting the Old Testament for you and how you were supposed to do it. So Jesus was called a rabbi far more often. In fact, he was only called a carpenter one time, was called a rabbi lots of times uh, in, the, in the Word of God. And as a rabbi, he took on disciples. He took on Talmud zine. But he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light because his interpretation of all 613 laws... In all 37 books of the Old Testament, his interpretation was love the Lord your God with all of your mind, heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the easiest yoke that a rabbi ever gave a young man in the land of Israel. Love God and love people. That was his interpretation. Well, what about all these guys? What about the wilderness? What about the Red Sea? What about the fire from heaven? What about the death and the destruction and the new life and the temple? And the it all means this. Love God and love people. That's what it was all for. It was all to show you that you need to love God and love people. Right? Well, what about Elijah and Elijah and their stories and the crossing and the Jordan and and the bear and the lion and David and Goliath and love God and love people. That's what we were supposed to get out of that. Love God, love people. If you've done that, you've done my will. That is my yoke. That's why he says, if you are laborers and you are heavy laden, take upon my yoke and my burden. Have rest, because it's easy and it is light. Issachar, crouching between two burdens. What are the two burdens that Christ is crouching between? The old and the new. The Old Covenant is a huge burden because nobody can live it. The New Covenant is a huge burden because it's going to cost him his life to promote it. So he's in between two. Also remember that as he's walking around teaching and preaching and doing miracles, the New Testament hasn't been written yet. The Old Testament has already been completed, so he's literally in between the two. So Issachar represents uh, this ministry of Christ, which if I'm going to put it in a nutshell, and you're going to see why it's relatable here in a minute, it is also the two burdens, if you will, 100% God and 100% man. Jesus Christ was. He was 100% God. All power in heaven and earth is given unto me. The Bible says the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelt in him. He told Philip and his disciples, I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is 100% God. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. First John 3.16 says that God gave His own life for that purpose, because it's interchangeable. He's 100% God, and He is 100% man. Two burdens that He bears. That only happens via one powerful substance. What part of Him... Came from God. What part? What was in Him that was of God that's not any 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 other one of us? Now we all we can all get the Holy Spirit, but there was something in Him that ran through His veins that came from the Father. It was perfection, but it was the blood. We know this because the Bible says that the sins are passed down through the blood or the bloodline of the Father. That's why none of us have the opportunity to be sinless. That's why none of our blood matters. And that's why his blood was special. That's why nothing but the blood. That's why we're saved by the blood. That's why it's under the blood. That's why we cover it with the blood. That's why we pray for healing by the blood. That's why the stripes matter. That's why he bled in the garden of Gethsemane. That's why it's a big deal that he was born of a virgin. That's why it's, it's, not a, it's not a fairy tale, but it's a reality. So if he wasn't born of a virgin, his blood wasn't from the Father, then his sacrifice and his crucifixion, while a nice deed, cannot get you to heaven. It's the perfect, sinless blood. Everybody say the blood. Verse number 19 In Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. Was, was Christ overcome? He died. Will he overcome at the last? He already has. Took him three days. Took him three days. I've planned to do something before and forgotten about it for three days. He did the entire work of redemption. I don't need that kind of confirmation. Uh, he, he did the entire, he did the entire work of redemption and saved the entire world and overcame the enemy three days. Three days until we saw him. Really, he started right away. Like, as soon as he died, he was, he, he, it says that he descended, and he basically took uh, his, his Bible, his iPad, his iPhone, whatever he wanted, he took it down there, and he started preaching. He set hell on fire, if you will, and, and he told the devil what he thought, took the keys of the kingdom, the Bible says, took the, ripped the keys out of Satan's hands and started walking off, and Satan was throwing a fit, and, and, and pyrotechnics were going everywhere, and Jesus was just like, oh, gosh, God, I got the keys. No, you can, I got the keys. Death, hell, and the grave. Then he took Abraham's bosom and all the saints that were there in. And he said, oh, you get to come with me. Well, how, to, how, how are we going to get out of here? I got the keys. Boom. Done. That actually didn't take three days. That took like three minutes. We didn't see him for three days. So that being said, he is an overcomer. But what does the Bible say about how we are made overcomers? We're made overcomers by the word of our testimony and say, I, hold on, you're not with me this morning. We're made overcomers by the word of our testimony and. Oh, my goodness. Oh, love lamb, Thank you. Blood of the lamb. That's for those of you that don't, aren't familiar with the scripture. I apologize. Now that you know the scripture, we're made overcomers by the word of our testimony and. Blood oh, God, I love you guys. See, it felt like it felt like 30,000 strong there. That was good. Uh, verse number 20. Mm-hmm. Out of Asher. His bread shall be fat. That word fat uh, refers to anointing as we've taught before. And he shall yield royal dainties. His bread. Did anything about bread have to do with the ministry of Christ? I believe he said, I am the bread from heaven. Shall be fat. What does that mean? Anointed. Does that have anything to do with Christ? Obviously. Yes, he is the anointed one. God has anointed me, he said, to preach this message, this gospel to the poor, to set the captives free and proclaim the good and perfect year of the Lord, so on and so forth. And you shall real, uh, you shall yield royal dainties. A royal dainty is is not like a like a mini cupcake or something, right? It's not a pastry. Yeah, it doesn't come in a cake holder. It's not. It's not Marie Antoinette's um, whatever little party. Uh, a royal dainty here, uh, referencing. Uh, In Genesis 49, what that would tell you in Hebrew, I guess it's a little bit difficult to translate in English, uh, that is talking about offspring shall yield royal dainties. In other words, you shall yield royal, a royal bloodline. Now, did Christ yield a royal bloodline? How did he do that? He said that he was going to make out of us a kingdom of priests. He said that you will be kings and you will be priests with me. That's what he said. He said, actually, these exact words, you are a royal priesthood, right? A royal priesthood. I don't know if you heard. Some of you are waiters. Some of you are waitresses. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are, are salesmen. Uh, some of you are engineers. One of one, one or two of you are engineers. Um, some of you are pastors. I know I obviously am, but some of you are and will be. Uh, some of you are whatever it is that you are. And maybe you're not real excited about that, but I have some exciting news for you this morning. It doesn't matter where you wait tables. It doesn't matter where you teach. It doesn't matter what your, la- what your name is, what your label is, what your title is. It doesn't matter whether you work the drive through at McDonald's. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that because of low regard. It's just people look at it that way. It doesn't matter where you work or who the world says you are. The moment that you accept Jesus Christ, he said, you are a royal priesthood. That can't be taken away. No man can snatch that away from you. You are a royal priesthood. Um, um, Let me let me let me try it like this. You have the authority with the king of kings and the Lord of lords to make royal decree in your life and in the lives of others. Why is it significant that he said you are a priest and you are a king? Let me tell you why that's significant, because once upon a time in the book of Revelation, about the fifth chapter, everybody was making their way into the throne room of God and they were real excited. Because they were about to be revealed a mystery. They were about to see the scroll that talked about the end of days and the beginning of eternity. They were about to get the vision. They were about to get the direction. They were about to know what everybody wanted to know. They were coming in. They were singing the song of Moses. They were line dancing like they did around the walls of Jericho. They were ready. They were excited. They all took a seat. It was standing room only. There was a scroll and it had seven seals. And it was it was sitting on the throne of God, and then everybody was looking at it, and everybody was looking around at everybody else, and everybody was like, "Well, um, who's gonna who's gonna get the scroll?" And everybody was like, "Well, uh, there's only only a high priest can walk into that room and have anything to do with that throne. So where's Aaron at? Aaron was the high priest. Aaron, where are you at?" And Aaron was like, "Yeah, I'm right here. I'm right here. Uh however, I'm not allowed to take that out. I could go in there and pick it up. Uh but only a only a king has the authority to to read it and proclaim it because it's a legal document." So, where's David at? And David was like, "I'm over here. Seriously, I'm right I'm not I'm not on any roofs. I'm right here." Good. <laughs> so they were like, "Okay. Well, we need a uh, We need We need a king. And I think you were like God's favorite king to uh, to read this scroll to us, to issue the the decree. And David was like, yeah, uh, yeah, I could do that. But I I can't walk in that room because I'm not a only a high priest can walk in that room has the authority to go in the Holy of Holies where the throne is. So they're like, well, what what if you and Aaron went in together? No, no, we're still violating. I can't go in. Aaron can go in, but he can't like toss the scroll out to me. So what are we going to do? And you read chapter five, and they all start—they all start weeping. Not like little—not like little crybabies. Like uh, it's a serious matter. Like somebody died weeping, and they're looking around. And they're like Abraham, you were the father of the faith. The law wasn't even written yet. And it's like, I can't. I'm sorry, I can't do it. He's weeping. John, he's given you the vision of Revelation. Can't you get no? John can't do it either. It's not going to work. And Lazarus, you were—you've been—you're on both sides. You died. You were resurrected unfortunately you died again and it, can you no mm-mm, can't do it so they're they're trying to they're they're talking to everybody up there i mean elijah elisha uh, all the all the mighty men of the bible and they're all say it's, it's revelation so you know what all the disciples all the 12 apostles are there uh, peter's there and he and jesus called him by name he walked on the water okay, what if we threw some water out and you walked on it in there and then can you like just can sign language or something i don't know how nobody could do it so they're weeping And then they see one like a lamb who was slaughtered. And he begins walking that way towards the throne room. And all of a sudden, their their weeping starts to turn into laughter. Their mourning starts to turn into dancing. Because there was one who the, the book of Hebrews tells us was a high priest after the order of Melchizedek and is also the king of kings and the lord of lords. There was one who fulfilled both roles. So he was able to walk into that throne room, take that scroll, break the seven seals, read it, decree it, have the authority over it. And then everybody rejoiced because now not only does he have complete authority in the physical realm, but he has also issued complete authority in the spiritual realm. The king has the authority physically. The priest has the authority spiritually. Let me tell you one more time, according to the word of God, you are a king and a priest. You are a royal priesthood. A priesthood that descends from the line of the king. Royal dainties. Everybody say the blood. That gives you a lot of authority. Gives you a lot of authority. You can proclaim healing in the physical. And you can receive it by faith in the spiritual. You have authority in both realms. The Bible says He's given you authority to tread on scorpions and serpents. All authority. Why scorpions and serpents? He didn't tell me, but I assume it's because a serpent has its venom and its sting in the head, and a scorpion has its venom and its sting in the tail. And he's telling you, I don't care whether this authority is a, an authority that seems like it's a headship or whether it's authority that comes from the tail, according to Deuteronomy, that Satan's authority is in the tail and other angels have authority that's in the head. But remember, Paul said, I don't care who comes to you preaching another gospel, whether it looks like me or whether it's an angel from heaven. They have no authority over the gospel. With the gospel that I preach, you take authority in that gospel. You have authority to, to tread on scorpions and serpents. You are a king and a priest. You are a royal dainty. Amen. Everybody say the blood. blood. So, uh, what was going on here in the heavenly realm? Why did God hide these three tribes from Lucifer? We're going to conclude with this sermon in First Corinthians chapter two, verse five. It says that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men. Everybody say stand but in the power of God. Everybody say faith. faith. Everybody say stand. Faith. faith stand. Not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory. What scriptures do we have about any wisdom of God that was before the world as we know it. Apparently, in Ezekiel 28, there was a perfected pre-fallen state of Lucifer who had dominion and a throne, according to Isaiah 14, in the Garden of Eden before Adam and Eve. But there was a hidden mystery at that same time that God did not reveal to Satan, that God did not reveal to his angels. And I'm trying to tell you that hidden mystery is in those three stones that were not represented on that breastplate, and it's wrapped up in those three tribes. And the mystery is this... Angels were created by God. Angels have a decree from God. Angels have an authority from God. Men were created by God. Men have a decree from God. Men have an authority from God as well. But there's a difference between men and angels. And the difference is this. Angels cannot get together and make more angels. But men and women can get together and make more human beings. The way that we're able to do that and multiply our forces is through the mystery and the power and the enigma of the blood. Whenever I'm praying, I know, according to the Bible, that I am fueling the angels that have been sent to fight the battle or the thing that I'm praying for, praying against, whatever the case may be. And I asked God one time, I said, I don't, under, I don't understand uh, why sometimes we have to pray so long for the same thing and not see results. Am I praying wrong? Am I? What's the deal? And he said, there's two things going on. First of all, When you pray and I send my angels, they fight, but they don't die. Neither do the angels that they're fighting against, the fallen angels. They don't die either because angels don't bleed. What they're fighting over is possession. They're fighting over land, in other words. What are you praying for? Are you praying for healing in your life? Or then he's sending angels, Neil, and as you're praying for that healing, they are beating back the darkness, but they are not killing it. And as you continue to pray, they continue to beat back the darkness and a Daniel just he was praying. It took 21 days for the angels that God sent to beat back the darkness, the kings and the princes over Persia that were withholding his answer. So God said, or at least he showed me that when you're praying, it's a battle and they're beating back the darkness. And the reason why sometimes we don't receive is because literally the darkest time of the night. Is right before the sun rises. And when the sun rises, it takes eight minutes for the light to hit the earth. And those eight minutes are supposedly the darkest period on the earth. Sometimes my people pray, my people fight, and they give up about eight minutes too soon. Because they, they usually give up at the darkest moment. When it gets the hardest, when it gets the bleakest, when it's the most blinding, and they don't realize that right when they're giving up, the sun has already risen, but they'll never see the glory because they turned, they turned their backs and they walked away. And the dark angels, if you will, they didn't die. Now that we stop praying, we give back the land that we so earnestly fought for for that long. If Daniel fought for that land for 20 days, he was one day away from getting it. He could have quit and said, "Okay, I guess it's not going to happen. And then all of that fighting, all that land goes back. So why did God hide these three stones? Why did God hide these three tribes? Because it was a wise decision. It was something that he did before the foundations of the world. Because he could see all things that were going to happen. And he did not want any of his angels, Lucifer especially, to be cognizant of the power of blood. Did not want him to know. Let's continue in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, our worship team, can go ahead and come up. Verse 7 We speak the wisdom of God and the mystery, even the even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes. Remember, princes and kings can mean real people or they can mean spirits. I believe it's interchangeable in this verse. That God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Why did God hide the three stones? Why did God hide the three tribes? Because He's a God of foreknowledge. This whole thing already played out in His head. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is a master chess player. And He knew the things that the devil would attempt, but He hid three stones and He hid three tribes and He hid them on your behalf. So that when everything went wrong one day and he sent his only begotten son and Satan said, oh, look at him sending his only son. Isn't that cute? I can do whatever I want with all these human beings. You know what? He had a son before. His name was Adam. And look what happened to him. So go ahead and send your son. Go ahead and send him down. I think I saw him one time in heaven. I think he looked the other way because he was intimidated. I think he's scared of me. So go ahead and send him down. I'll tell you what, I'll let him play this all the way through. We'll make him a priest when he's 30. I'll let, his, I'll let his ministry take off for like three and a half years, and then I got something for you. So go ahead and send him down. So he sent him down, and he started preaching, and Satan didn't like it. A few times he rised up, he was like, you know what, forget this three and a half years, I'm going to kill him right now. And then they turn around, and he's gone. He disappeared. And then he goes and he spits in mud and he heals a blind guy. He gives somebody that's deaf back their ears. He makes the lame walk and Satan's, okay, I, I wasn't ready for all this. I'm going to kill him right now. And I try to grab him and he's gone. And so Satan's like, you know what? The only thing I can do, I guess, is maybe try to inhabit one of his disciples. If I can get a hold of one of his disciples, well, what is the root of all evil? The love of money is the root of all evil. Let me try the disciple that handles the money. And it worked really well. He got up in there and now he knows his schedule. You can't disappear from me when I'm the one telling you where we're going and when we're going there. 30 pieces of silver, pays off some priests because he's already messed with their hearts. Uses that disciple, finally nails him down. And right when he gets the Roman guard to walk into the Garden of Gethsemane, maybe he doesn't know Hebrew as well as we do right now and didn't understand the Garden of Gethsemane and what it meant. I want to go into that, but I won't. So he's in the garden. And they walk into the garden with the Roman guard guard, and Satan's feeling all big and bad and he's all puffed up. He's like, watch this. And they walk up to him and they say, where is Jesus? And he turns around and says, I am. And it blows them all back, the Bible says. The power of his voice. So it's kind of like, I'm here. Do you want to try that again? And so they get back up and they're like, can you come with us? (laughs) Please. Can you? And they and then Peter gets all out of sorts, cuts a guy's ear off. Jesus stops him, picks up the guy's ear, prays and puts it back on his head. Now they're all confused. He can knock us down with his voice. He heals us. when We're trying to kill him. Why are we here? 30 pieces of silver have been traded. So they grab him. They chain him. They bind him. And then they start getting a little bold. They start. They start jeering at him a little bit, making fun of him a little bit. They probably had like a stick. They're probably poking him with a stick to see what would happen. Was he going to do something or is he going to break these chains? They know about Samson's story. He doesn't do anything. He goes before dumb like a lamb led to the slaughter. Dumb meaning he refused to speak. They get real bold. They start torturing him. They start beating him. They start pulling his beard out. Whatever. Satan's feeling really good at this point. Finally gets him nailed up to the cross. And he's ready. He was like, According to everything I've heard, this is your only son. So what now? Because I got my people to nail him up on the cross, and he's slowly dying. And God, I think, is sitting on the throne with three stones in his hand, just doing that little trick that people do with quarters, going, oh, I got, it's all right, that's covered, we're good. And Satan's going, yep. He's gonna die any minute now God's going no, oh, we're good we're good he he pre- might have went into his in his little dwelling place and got that old breastplate out put it on going real good look at what's about to happen hmm remember that throne I had in Eden remember that authority that I had hmm I kept that breastplate see and then God's got the three stones he's going huh it's a nice breastplate I remember. When I gave it to you, I kind of messed up on a part. (laughs) My bad. Uh, Then he, Eli, 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 Sabacton, big smile on the devil's face. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 2 hasn't been written yet. Now we know in retrospect what he didn't know at that point in time. We speak the wisdom of God in the mystery, verse 7. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So as he begins to bleed out, God's looking down at Satan, Satan's looking down looking up at God, and and God's showing him these three stones, and he goes, Oh, by the way, you know that thing that seems so terrible that you're not able to experience called death? It is terrible. But there's this little thing that I can do right afterwards called resurrection. And you know what happens after my perfect son and his perfect blood get resurrected? He can never taste of death again. So the devil's sitting there playing the chess game with God. He moves around to the queen and the king and he says, checkmate. But he said it one move too early. And right as he's about to knock the piece down and walk away from the table, the king says, no, 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 no. I have one more move. And whenever you proclaim chess too early in a game of chess, you lose a turn. So not only are you not about to win this game, but you're about to lose a turn, my friend. That means not only is my son going to win this game, but all of my people will also have authority over you. In Jesus name. I remember when I gave you that breastplate. I meant to have a talk with you about the third row. Since I didn't, now we're having that talk. And it means you lose. Amen? Sticks and stones. Sticks and stones. That's all that God needs. Three hidden stones, two sticks crossed together. That's all he needs. Sticks and stones to win the battle. Go ahead and stand to your feet. I'm going to reiterate these scriptures. Romans 5:2. by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. Everybody say stand. And rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Would you stand fast in the faith? Everybody say stand. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Say stand. 2 Corinthians 1, 24. Not for we have dominion over your faith, but our helpers is over your joy. For by faith you stand. Everybody say stand. stand. We are called to stand in the faith. And so what I want to implore you to do this morning, what I want to challenge you to do, is trust God in every detail. He's not just the God Of everything that he's done for you. He is also the God of things that he didn't do on purpose. He's not just the God of the nine stones. That he gave you. He's the God of the three stones that he doesn't need to reveal to you yet. The hidden wisdom of God is a powerful thing. He hasn't called you to run into a group of devils or a a big uh, army of the enemy and start waving your swords around and make this a big fight and a a big ordeal and an epic battle. Noah, there's a reason why they had to change that story to make a movie out of it. Because God doesn't need Noah to go and fight a bloody war. God just needed him to stand. I'm going to give you the specs. You build the boat when the rain comes, stand in the boat that's it stand stand yes it's called a christian walk but that's because in the physical we can't just literally stand right here forever we have to walk this thing out but in the spiritual as you're walking in the physical world understand that in the spiritual world you're taking a stand you're making a stand and as the song said we stand by each other when we make that stand and it's worldwide the reason why we shared that video There are Christians taking that same stand all over the world. You will never stand alone. So don't run out into the battlefield and think you have to fight alone. Stand and watch the glory of God. Stand and see. One more thing about standing and we really will close. I think one of the reasons we're called to stand in our faith and not run out and get crazy in our faith, so to speak, is because we have the nature as Christians when something happens to us, when we go through a difficult time, uh, when, we, when we're in a difficult situation, our charismatic response is just about how God is going to get us out and God is going to do a wonderful work and God is going to do a thing, and we run away from the situation and we, and we just believe God to do something better in the future. Running away with our faith. But if we stand in that situation... We might have to take some ownership of it. We might have to look down and say, okay, maybe maybe I did something wrong. Maybe the change that needs to happen isn't God changing my situation. Maybe the change that needs to happen is in me. But it's hard to change somebody when they're running from you all the time. So he says, stand. When I can change you, you'll see that your whole situation will change. The Bible says it like this. Solomon said there's no new thing under the sun. Jesus said, behold, I make all things new. So there's only one or the other. Everything, everything is a, a repeat of a repeat. Everything or everything is new. Those are the only two options. Neither one of those are the reality. The reality is when he changes you, all of those things that haven't changed become new. Because you're a new person walking into them. It changes everything around you. But in order for that to happen, you can't run around and try to fix it all yourself. You've got to stand. Take a stand. Make a stand in your faith and let God reveal to you the hidden wisdom.